Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. From Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, this is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. When you imagine an umpire, a chess arbiter, a boxing referee, do you picture women? Well, today you're going to hear stories from three women in the sports world who are thriving in those particular positions of power. Martha Underwood is one of only seven women ever to become a national tournament director for the U.S. Chess Federation, and Sparkle Lee as a boxing referee who was inducted into the International Women's Boxing Hall of Fame in 2015. But first, meet umpire Christy Howard, whose Facebook post about something that happened right after a softball game last year went viral. Of all the strikes that she's called over the past 10 years, this one was personal. After Christy called a safe on a steal at second, a mother of one of the 12-year-old players got pretty irate. She started screaming profanities, threatening to slap Christy, and that naturally got her kicked out of the ballpark. So what happened next? So we resumed the game. We we played about two more innings of the game. And um, when I came off the field, man, she was just there. She just, I don't even know where she came from. Like, I, I didn't even see her coming. But um, she was like, now what do you got to say to me? and um, punched me. Have you ever been punched in the face before? No. How'd it feel? It's not so nice. Um, it was it was pretty bad. I had a severe contusion and some nerve damage, which luckily it's healed. Um, you know, all of it's healed. But yeah, I mean, she, she laid it on me. I've never been punched in the face before. But... In addition to the physical pain, I imagine it's deeper than that because, you know, it's one thing if you punch my arm or in the stomach or something, but the face, I mean, it's, it feels in my imagination so personal and so violating. Yeah. What was it like in that sense for you? Uh, yeah, it, it was very much both of those things. And also it was very, um, it was very humiliating. Um, it was embarrassing. It still is. You know, I mean, it, it was, um, it's, it's been a lot. It's been a lot to deal with, you know, just to be honest. I mean, even at this point, you know, we're months down the road and it's still, um, it's a lot. I mean, it, it has changed me. Um, not, not only as an umpire, but it is, it definitely has changed me just as a person. How so? I guess you kind of go through life and you, and you never really think that, you know, something like that is going to happen to you. I mean, you hear these things happening, you know, but you never think that they're going to happen to you, especially in our little small town, <laughs> you know, that we, that we live in and work in and, and whatever. And then, you know, when it does, it's just like this huge um, wake up call, you know, and, and honestly, um, I struggled with whether or not I was going to get back on the field. I mean, and this is something that, 
you know, I love, I love the game. I love the kids. I love the atmosphere of being out there and being with the kids and interacting and, and just the game, the love of the game that I have. And um, I really struggled. Um, it's, it's just been hard. I don't know what it feels like to be coming where she's coming from, but like, what did she, what does anybody who yells at a ref think is going to happen when they say you suck or that call was effed up or I'm going to punch you in the face? Like, what do they think is going to happen? I'm not sure. I can tell you from my own personal self for doing this 10 years. And also I have hundreds of of umpire friends. I mean, thousands now since this happened really. And I, I feel like I can speak for us when I say you're not doing yourself any favors. Back to that. And I mean, you know, we all expect that. Come on, Blue, you know, where's your glasses? You got some missed calls. Where's your phone? That kind of thing. That's all part of it. You know, we get it. We know you're not going to agree with every call that we make. You know, that's understandable. But at some point in time, we've crossed that line. And the saddest part about it is there's so many people that think that that's okay. That it's okay to cuss an official, an umpire, referee, whatever it may be. It's okay to do that. It's okay if you don't agree to call them names and and physically threaten them and even now putting your hands on one. And what are we teaching these kids in a society? You know, like, like that's okay. Okay, well, hey, you don't agree with somebody, then okay, that's okay to punch them in the face. It's okay to come up behind them and push them down. You know, it's okay to wait for them in the parking lot with a baseball bat and and walk home because you don't agree with that. And it's that's not okay. That is not a message that um, that we need to be sending. And these children growing up thinking that that's okay, not at all. This lady was wearing a shirt that had something written on it. What was on her shirt? Yeah, Mother of the Year. Yeah. <laughs> You can't make this stuff up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and I saw, you know, a lot of things about it on Facebook and what have you. And one of my friends was like, look, she's probably not really sorry. She punched you, but she is surely sorry that she wore that shirt that day. Yeah. <laughs> um, so what happened next? Did you call the police? Did they go to her house and arrest? Like what, what happened next? And are you suing her? What's going on? So the police came and they actually picked her up um, right down the road. Um, she went to jail. She bonded out uh, maybe about 45 minutes later. And um, she would not respond to the court's attempt to set a court date. And she entered a plea via email when she had to enter a plea. The first time she said not guilty. And we actually wound up going to court in November. The beginning of November, I forget the exact date. And on that day, she did show up and she did plead guilty. And um, she had a a $440 fine, um, a suspended 30-day jail sentence, and a no-contact order um, against me. So is that it? That's it. Do you wish more had been done? Yes. Like what? I think she should have served some jail time. 30 days is good. I'd have been good with 30 days in jail, actually, not suspended. I think she should have been ordered to pay my medical bills. I think she should have been ordered to pay some kind of pain and suffering. I think she should have been made to apologize. 
anger management classes. And this would never happen, but I wish you'd have been made to umpire. I wish you'd have been made to umpire a tournament in Mississippi in July when the heat index is over 200 and be out there all day with parents screaming and yelling at her and let her get a taste of how it feels because it looks so easy when you're sitting in a chair on the other side of the fence. And it's so easy to sit there and be judgmental and think that you can see everything so much better than the umpire that's actually on top of the play and to think that you know all the rules when you've never picked up a rule book and read one rule in it. But but you think you know because you played t-ball when you were a kid, so you know it all at this point, right? So I, I would have taken that over her going to jail and an apology, whatever, for her to have to call one tournament. I know that oftentimes when really difficult or painful or confusing or frustrating or scary things happen at the time, it's hard to see how in the world it could possibly benefit you because it just hurts and it's frustrating and you have nightmares and you ruminate and you imagine conversations with them that you can never have and them on the field being the umpire, which they won't do. But in what way has this experience expanded you? It did bring a huge awareness to official abuse. And I did have um, so many parents reach out to me, um, either through Messenger or they commented on the post. I read so many that was like, hey, I'm that person. I've been that person. I've never physically assaulted an umpire, but I've yelled at you. I've cussed at you. I've said like they ridiculed you and mocked you and whatever. And, you know, this has really brought it to my attention that it's not cool. I don't want to do that anymore. And so thank you for that, you know, and this is real. You know, this is a real threat. You know, we've got to do something to combat this. And and after it happened, you know, a, a lot of organizations, local organizations in Mississippi, you know, they sent out letters. Hey, we will not tolerate this kind of behavior. If you do, your team's going to be fined. You're going to be banned. You know, all these consequences are going to happen. So I do feel like, you know, that that some good has come from it. And um it, is, it really expanded me. And like when I do um, trainings and I talk to my umpires before we start a day or whatever to be conscious, hey, look, don't think this isn't going to happen to you. Be aware of your surroundings. And that, you know, I was really lax in that. Like I said, I didn't think she was ever going to hit me. But you know what I struggle with um, at this point, and, and I have since this happened, is what if she had a knife in her back? What if she went to her car and got a gun? You know, what if it's all the like, what ifs, what if her anger would have been worse than what it was, you know? And, you know, some people are like, oh, you got a black eye. So what? Big deal. People get black eyes all the time. But it didn't only just affect me. It affected my kids. It affected my parents. It affected my friends. It affected everybody that was at that ball game. There were little kids crying. I mean, as soon as, I mean, they started crying. They're screaming, oh, my God. You know, this was at my local park. I've umpired these kids for years. I see them for travel ball. I see them for rec ball. They're crying. Somebody named Miss Christie. I mean, they're traumatized. It's something they'll never forget either. It just it, the train of who all that it affected was just so big. And 
I just wish that before people would scream and threaten and cuss and, and even actually put your hands on an official, just stop and think about what you're doing and, and the effects long term that you're having, the example that you're setting for not only your kid, but the other children that are there. And Parents don't realize when you're screaming and yelling at the umpire or even the coach because you don't agree with the position that the coach has put your kid in. She's a catcher and he's got her on second and you're mad about it because you wanted to be catching or whatever. You're yelling, you're screaming, you're yelling at your kids. She messed up. She made a mistake. You know, he made a little error. And so now you're screaming because you expect them to be perfect or whatever. You want to know what they're saying to us? Oh my God, like that's my mom. I wish she would just shut up. That's my dad. I'm so embarrassed. Can you like go tell him to stop? That's what they're saying to us on the field. So not only are you really, you're embarrassing yourself by your behavior, but think about how that's affecting your own child. You know, this, this girl, the, the child of the lady that hit me, you know, I was told was very upset. She was crying, wanted to know if she was going to be able to play ball anymore, whatever. But if there were any college aspirations for this kid at that point, they're gone now. They're gone. You don't think that there's not scouts at these, especially high school showcases and stuff, and you don't think that they're watching the parents and the people that are there with that kid? Nobody wants that kind of stuff in their organization. Nobody wants the people that act like that. So you're jeopardizing something that you supposedly love and you're supporting your kid at. Let the coaches coach and let the umpires call the game. And you be the parent and support your kid. We're not perfect. There is no official in the land that is perfect. We're not. We're not there to get rich. We're not there to make your life miserable. And God forbid, we're not there to try to rob little Susie from a scholarship or some point by calling her out when you think she was safe. That's none of our intent. We don't make the rules, but we're there to enforce them. And we're there to run a game so that your kid can play the game that they love. Stop and think about it. They're not perfect, but they're there so your kid can play that game. And without them, it's just practice. There's no game. You decided to get back on the field. What was that like? It was hard. I'm sorry. Okay. Take your time. It was really hard. And um, um, I could hear my dad's voice in my head, you know, like, quitters never win and winners never quit. Am I going to let her take that from me? Am I a quitter? You know, what kind of example am I going to set if I just walk away? So it just came down to the choice either I was going to let her win and, and I was going to be the loser or I was going to be the winner and get back out there. And so I did. And, and that day, you know, it was particularly hard, but I did it and you know, I'll be honest, you know, my tolerance level, you know, it's, it's gone down. I'm going to nip it in the bud probably a lot quicker than, you know, I, I used to. I'm not going to let it even get to the level that it got to that day. So it's been a little less than a year that this happened. 
And I know that when someone hurts you physically, emotionally, in any way, it's hard to know what to be other than angry. And justice is funny because there's no, there's no such thing as justice, really. I mean, even if she did spend time in jail, this thing still happened. And you still have this burden that you didn't ask for and you didn't deserve. That being said, if you happen to ever see her out of nowhere, somewhere, what would be the best case scenario for what you would say to her? Just say you're sorry, man. Just just say you're sorry. It's, you know, it's not so hard. It's really not. When I mess up, I just had to do this to one of my umpires. Okay, perfect example. Okay, something happened. I got upset. I raised my voice and shouldn't have raised my voice at him. And I felt bad about it. So I apologize and I felt better about myself and just overall because I, I did that. And, and I just don't think that anybody, no matter who you are, should ever feel like that you're too big to issue an apology for whatever it may be. But I'm, I'm not, I'm never going to get an apology. So I just have to move on. This year has included a lot of you talking to media about what happened. And, you know, I understand that also helps you get through this and make sense of this and feel like you're at least your pain is going to be helping other people by bringing awareness to like, no, this is what it looks like when it gets out of hand. Don't let yourself get out of hand. Don't let your friend who's had 18 beers at the stadium and is yelling at the ref get out of hand, like stand up, make sure this doesn't happen again. Is there a part of you though, who is really tired of talking and thinking about this? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yes, yes. I really had no idea that this would go um, viral like it did. I really overnight became a little small town nobody (laughs) to the poster child for official abuse. And that's fine because I feel like that there is a reason that God allowed this to happen to me. So with that exposure and all the media contacted me and all the the officials all over contacted me and everybody that I've umpired the past 10 years and, you know, coaches and, and everybody, with this came an overwhelming sense of obligation and responsibility to share my story and the National Association for Sports Officials has been awesome. I mean, they immediately, I wasn't even a member of it and they immediately reached out to me. Um, Mr. Mano, the um, founder of it, just been awesome and supportive in any way that they could. I actually went to Denver, Colorado and spoke at their summit over the summer and, and shared my story and, that was a really neat experience. So I, I've, you know, it's there's been some good come of it, and I do think that um, at the end of the day, it's changed some coaches and it's changed some parents and it's changed some organizations and how they choose to deal with with this kind of behavior. Christy Howard, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you for sharing this story, not for me but for every official. I appreciate it. 
when we get back. What a chess arbiter sees when things go wrong during a game. There might even be, you know, visceral physical responses like a face palm or tears or anger or utter defiance. Plus perspective from inside the boxing ring. We know what the crowd wants. The crowd wants all the blood and people get knocked down and get up and knocked down. You want to make sure everybody goes home. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Stay with me. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygen it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Today we're meeting female referees, also called referees. In a little bit, you'll hear from Sparkle Lee. She's a ref who's been officiating in boxing matches for over 30 years. But right now, meet Martha Underwood of Tucson, Arizona. She's one of only seven women ever to have earned the U.S. Chess Federation's title of National Tournament Director. So, okay, what are some examples of moves or behaviors that she, as a chess arbiter, is watching for? An example would be something as simple as a touch-move claim. One player claims that the opponent was touching a piece with the intent to move it. The other player claims, no, I was just just adjusting that piece because it wasn't on the square in the center. And so as an arbiter or a tournament director, we have to determine of those two accounts with evidence, which we would uphold. And a claim should not be upheld if there's no evidence. For example, if someone else didn't see that it looked like he touched the piece with intent. Or if the player doesn't say out loud, yeah, I meant to move the queen, so I have to move it. And we say to the player making the claim who's raised their hand and had a problem, tell me what happened, and they describe it. Show me what happened, and they show how the other player touched the piece. And then I'll ask the opponent to say what happened. And often the story changes by the third time and a player may concede and say, okay, I guess he didn't really mean to move that piece. And the, or the other player may say, yeah, I touched my queen. I guess I have to move it. And then the tears come. <laughs> That's what I'm interested in too. Like this is when I think about chess, I think about a lot of focus, strategery, as, as our past president once said, strategery. Good word. And I, I think about emotions. And so like, what kind of emotions do you, how do you see emotions come up with chess? 
I have a lot of experience with scholastic players and newer players. So the emotions come up when a player recognizes they may have made an incorrect move. And there might even be, you know, visceral physical responses like a face palm or tears or anger or utter defiance. I, I didn't move the piece there. I left it here and, and they'll just defy it. And then I'll say, well, that's interesting because from where I was standing, I saw you. I mean, if I'm my own best witness. If you're seeing a sort of a skirmish starting to happen, if you are there watching it in the background and then they make a claim and you've seen what happened, then you can intervene. But the emotional piece is huge, especially with newer beginning players. And also, honestly, I've seen it with very experienced grandmasters, too, when they lose on time. For example, their time runs out on their clock or perhaps they made a an incorrect move. And sometimes I've seen all the pieces go flying. And so there are responses that are very demonstrative of emotional distress. And joy. And so we, one of the things I do as well, especially as a chief tournament director, if people are coming up to report their scores and a parent is waiting outside, you may have seen this in some versions of movies. I think it's a poignant scene in Searching for Bobby Fischer, where the two players come out and one has his head down and the other one is like, yeah. And the parent says, you know, how'd you do? And they say, I won. And the parents start screaming and jumping for joy. And then the other parent grabs their other kid and the other kid's crying. And I really try to diminish that kind of experience for the player who lost the game because it's really dramatic and unnecessary, in my opinion. <laughs> when I say sexism in the chess arbiting world, uh, what comes to mind? My daughter was playing an event and she came up to me. She was, I think, 14 or 15 at the time and said, this guy is walking around taking pictures. Of, she took a picture of me, is what she said, and of other female players. So she pointed out who the player was. And I went up, I had my tournament director hat off at the moment, was just a mom. And I went up to the player and I asked the player, what, why are you taking those pictures? He said, because I have a website called Hot Girls Who Play Chess. And I said, do you have their permission? I mean, have you asked permission? And he said, no. And he, he said, do you, do you want to see the pictures? And he showed me and he goes, I'll delete them all right now. And I said, yeah, I mean, your intent is not a pure intent and you have no permission to show those pictures. And one of, you know, I actually, I didn't mention to him that one of them was my daughter, but I said, it's not appropriate. And I could take this up with the chief tournament director, but if you delete all those pictures and stop doing this, I mean, I felt nervous about the interaction because I'm on staff. Do I say anything or not? And the pictures were generally of women with their head down and pointing directly at a low cut blouse kind of thing. So it was that kind of image that this guy was taking. So then I brought it up later over drinks um, with the chief tournament director. And I, I said, I didn't know where to go with this or who to tell. And he goes, it's best that we do nothing. So the, the gentleman, gentleman, the player who was taking the, fo the photographs was not penalized. Nothing happened. And I'm sure he went right back to it. So there's a lot of subculture related to women who do play chess. And unless, and I've spoken to Irina Crush and other top players and how they deal with it. And they just say they don't, I mean, they just detach from it. They don't pay attention to it. Women in general are often harassed over the board, as are arbiters. 
And that is just something that we as um, human women have to deal with uh, in every, I think, subculture and community that in which we work. And um, it's less and less when you become more of an authority figure, but it took a lot of strength and, uh, I don't know, focus to get to this point. Now, in terms of women in positions of power in the sport, you've said that there is a huge disparity in terms of them having the opportunities to be arbiters in higher level tournaments, which makes it harder to get certification and work your way up. How long do you think it'll take the chess world to open up to more women and to other people who aren't usually at the table? I don't think it's going to happen in my lifetime. I do not. I think we've made strides. In the U.S. championship, I think a female player played this year, the open championship. Open is the term that is used for all genders, and women is the term that's used for the women's component. Some female players at top levels like that will only play in open events and will not play in the segregated women's events. Also, the climate and the um, feeling at a female-only event, which I've run many, It's just more comforting, familial, um, friendly. Uh, There isn't a lot of leering or or that kind of thing. So so women are able to focus on the game. And another piece that um, I've worked strongly to be involved in is involving people with disabilities in the chess community. And I earned a PhD in supporting people with behavioral requiring behavioral interventions and accommodations many, many years ago and worked in the schools and worked with families with behavioral support methods. And my strongest advocacy was for inclusion in typical events in our world. So when I started getting involved in the chess community, I noticed kind of a deficit regarding those kinds of accommodations. So they could be something like lighting for someone who might have visual impairment or raising a chair if someone had a smaller uh, stature or whatever it might be for those kinds of physical accommodations. But there are other accommodations that could work for behavioral interventions. So coming up with behavioral contracts with players so that they learn to respond um, appropriately as opposed to throwing all the pieces or shaking the table or climbing under the table. And I've been very, 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 very successful in working with players who might have even cognitive deficits who wanna play chess and have worked their way up and play in their section. And um, I serve on a committee called Accessibility and Special Circumstances for the US Chess Federation. And we created some guidelines Uh, to support organizers and tournament directors in including people with disabilities in their events in the appropriate sections rather than having segregate disabled events. In my view, this is my philosophy, and it may not be the right one, but it's one that I take, which is if you hold a segregate event, it just further creates that divide. Whereas so many players who might have a disability are as strong as a master they just have shortened limbs or they might require extra lighting 
so that they can see the board better, or they might require someone to record moves for them because they have no arms, but can move with their mouth, something like that. I've seen all sorts of accommodations that are, and the whole point of being an arbiter is make the game fair for each player. So nothing you would do would accommodate someone so much so that they would have an advantage in the game. It would be simply to accommodate that player, female, or a player with a disability so that there's a fair feeling across the game, a fair game is held. And that is the thing that I think I've learned the most and the strongest thing that I bring as an arbiter, a tournament director to each match that I observe. So So I have one final question. I saved the hardest question for last. Okay. If you had to be a chess piece. Ah, what chess piece would you be? Well, the queen, of course. <laughs> I would be the queen. I am the queen. I would want to move in every direction. I would want to be in charge. I mean, the, the king, if the king is checkmated, the game's over. But the queen has the most travel ability, the most uh, strength and power on the board. And absolutely, I would be the queen. <laughs> well, Martha Underwood... Thank you so much for talking with me. You're welcome. Shortly before the airing of this episode, Martha resigned from the Accessibility and Special Circumstances Committee, but she says she remains committed to U.S. Chess's mission and vision of inclusiveness for all players. After the break, how does coming from a big family contribute to being a great boxing ref? My mom having nine boys and seven girls, yeah. It, it was a lot of stuff going on in there. <laughs> so you you better had know how to take care of yourself. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Be right back. You're thinking of the kind of thing that we've seen in the past. Chanting gurus, walkie-talkies, walk out hypnotist tempers, not so far. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. If you met Sparkle Lee at a party or something, you would know right away that she's very smart and funny and kind. But you might not realize that you were talking to someone who's been a ref in the boxing ring for over 30 years. And you may not know that she was the first female ref to be licensed in New York and New Jersey, the only woman to ref a match at Yankee Stadium, and she was the first referee ever to be inducted into the International Women's Boxing Hall of Fame. Before she decided to become a ref in 1983, she was already way in love with boxing. She'd been throwing jabs, crosses, and uppercuts at Gleason's Gym in Harlem, the oldest and one of the most famous boxing gyms in the country. And she just couldn't get enough of it. So what is it about boxing that made Sparkle love it so much? While you're hitting that bag, you're really getting a lot of stuff out. (laughs) You had a bad day, somebody you thought about when you hit on that bag, that's who was right in front of you. So I got a lot of things out, personal stuff, even when I was a child, didn't even realize it that I was able to release in the gym. So when you're reffing, what's going through your mind? What are you looking for? 
you want to make sure everybody goes home. So your job is to, as they're fighting, because people are going to get hurt. But if you see somebody dominating somebody where even, I would say, Steve, you want to know they're not going to win, then you're going to have to stop the fight. Because I even tell the fighters, at the end of the day, I want you guys to go home to your family. We know what the crowd wants. The crowd wants all the blood and people get knocked down and get up and knocked down. We're there to make sure that no one gets seriously hurt. So our job is when it's time to stop the fight, we stop the fight. Have you ever gotten hurt? I've gotten it. Like the punch going back. But, and then, you know, and it's funny. I, I, that might happen one or two times. I know a fight was like, oh, I'm sorry. But it was my fault. And I said, honey, it's my fault. Because I should have had my damn hands up. It's different if I say stop and then you swing and I get hit. But um, I, that has never happened. Now, you have nine brothers and six sisters. How did growing up with such a big family affect? Do you think it had anything to do with what you do for a living? My mom having nine boys and seven girls. Yeah, it, it was a lot of stuff going on in there. <laughs> so you you better had know how to take care of yourself. But um, it, I think it was a blessing to have a big family because you get to know so many people way. Like, it's no one I can meet to say that I can't relate to somebody in my family. You know, I was a cop also. So just being a cop and just dealing with people, I think that's why I get along with so many people because, oh, okay, you acting like him, you acting like Jerry, you acting like, our, you know, I can always um, get along with anybody because my family was so many different people in one house. What do you think the difference is between a ref who is very, very good at what they do and a ref who is just getting their sea legs. I don't care how long you've been a referee. Every time you get in that ring, something different is going to happen. We learn something every day. So even that referee that you see up there, you, uh, you would call the TV ref, you always see him on TV. Something's going to happen that he ain't never experienced again. Never experienced. But what we do as refs, we're like a family. We teach each other. But that novice person, it's their job to sit up here and get the experience. So when they do go through certain situations, they'll know how to handle it. But every time I get in that ring, I'm going to tell I do, I pray. I'm a Jesus girl. I just want you to let you know. I'm like this. All right, Lord, help me out. <laughs> Is that how you prepare for a match? All the time. Pray out. You don't know, that's me. I go to church every Sunday. I do that. So whenever I go to a fight, way before the fight, I'm praying because I don't know. And it's so important. We have those fighters' lives. This is no joke. Any other referee you could be doing, but when it comes to boxing or any sport where you're in that ring with these guys, their life is in my hand. That's so important. So it's not really easy to want to be, oh, I want to be a ref. Yeah, but you better know why you want to be a ref. You got to protect these, these fighters. You know, it's our job to get to let them go home. It's a serious job. It's a serious job. You'd mentioned that refs regardless of how long they've been doing this are teaching each other and that you learn something new practically with every match has there ever been a match that really took you by surprise what happened wow 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 one time i had a a big heavyweight fight and you know you go in the back and you talk to these guys hey you know i'm gonna be a referee this is what i expect of you blah 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 the one guy was giving me kind of a little trouble in the back Oh, what you going to do? You know, because he see I'm smaller than him. And I said, I'm doing whatever. What you mean? He said, how are you going to break us up? He was just giving me, I'm like, oh, he must be bad. 
He gave me so much trouble. The other fighter, no problem. To get in the ring, boom, boom, boom. Who goes down one? The one that was giving me trouble. Really? I don't think that fight lasts two rounds. And I was like, you know what? I'm not saying nothing. So that right there might have been a little surprise for me because I thought he was going to go in and knock somebody out and he got knocked out. Being a woman in this field, I imagine you're treated differently uh, than your male counterparts. Am I wrong? Yes and no. I would say that would be for those who don't know me. I would say that. Or those who don't believe women should be in a ring. You got some men or whatever, and women, don't even believe a woman should even be fighting. Forget about repping. So for those people, you know, you're not going to be able to change everybody. But I, I'm grateful that I've been in a sport long enough. Like I said, I did the amateurs. I did them from 83 to 2001. So anybody that knew me then, your guys are now adults. You know, I'm not no joke. I'm not just coming up saying, oh, let me get someone to be a female ref. You know, I took it serious because I was working when I wasn't getting paid. (laughs) (laughs) Paying my own way to travel and stuff. You are, by virtue of doing this job, hanging out with people who are feeling a lot of emotion and going through a lot of physical stress. How does that affect you? It's so funny you said that because I go to boxing adventures every year. And for the first time, we saw talking about the fighters' mental state. So that's so amazing. And they start talking about that. And so that already is already helping me to even do things a little different. You know, what about that fighter who we know might be really scared, but he wants his friends and everybody to think he's not afraid of his opponent, but he can't show that. What about that? You don't know. We don't know what goes on in these fighters' mind when they get in there. Oh, yeah, they looking all hype. Yeah, yeah, but you don't know. He's looking like, oh, shit, I'm really in here with this guy. That's a talk for the coaches and them to start looking at their fight. Hey, how, how are you? Are you ready for this? See, I can't, I have nothing to do with that. I pray, it's funny you said that, I pray for them that they're good, but that's not my concern. I'm curious, too, about proximity to violence. See, when I imagine myself feet away from someone getting punched in the jaw, my heart, you know, I've, I've, I flinch, I recoil, and I know that's because I'm a public radio host, I'm not a boxing referee. Do you find that you are in some ways desensitized to physical violence of all kinds because of this, or not at all? You're shaking Absolutely your head. Absolutely not, girl. Boxers are athletes. They are athletes like anybody else. This is just a part of what they do. Whether you box or baseball, whatever you do, if they athletes, I don't see it that way. I don't, it's funny you say that. I cringe when I see people doing that in the street and I see somebody beating, that what bothers me. But once in the ring, these are two athletes. This is what they train to do. So no, it doesn't bother me. I love it. I, when I see a fighter really doing a jab, like mind me of Sugar Ray Leonard and Hearns, you know, all these people fighting. I'm like, yo, this is nice. Especially when it's a woman. I mean like, yo, go girl. But I cringe in the street. That's where I have a problem. But in the ring, oh, I love it. I love it. Not the same. You've achieved a lot of firsts in your career. First licensed female boxing referee in New York and New Jersey. Uh, You said at your induction speech at the Women's Boxing Hall of Fame that being the first was not glamorous. There's no pretty dresses. There's no red carpet. And it takes a while for anybody to put your name on a plaque. But being first for me means that there was a lot of doors had to be slammed in your face. There was a lot of people telling you you can't do it. 
a lot of doubts, tons of fears. And you got used to hearing the word no when you just prayed for just one yes. Can you talk about what that felt like to be the first ref ever to be inducted into the International Women's Boxing Hall of Fame? Well, first I thought they had made a mistake calling me. Uh, Honestly, I was like, what? You know, is this a little joke here? You know, is that April Fool's or whatever? I didn't even believe it. I, I didn't even at that time didn't really felt that I had to deserve it. And then they started talking and talking, but you did this while we all was like, I, oh, I did. Oh, you were like, okay. All right, I'll take it in. I'll take it in. And it was, it was, it was, oh man, that was amazing. That was so amazing. My family. And friends came all the way out here to Florida to support me. I was like, oh, my God. And then Didi with Leila Ali getting inducted at the same time. Oh, you know, I was like, oh, I done made it now. One thing that you started your speech off with was a reference to God. And you've brought up God uh, during our conversation. Um, What do you think God thinks about boxing. Wow. I think he likes it. <laughs> he believes, yo, listen, he down with it. He like, keep your hands up, keep your hands up. Yo, <laughs> do what you gotta do. Listen, he knows it's a it's a, a, a sport. And at the end of the day, we gotta guard our heart and do whatever. So I'm I think he's down with that. He's down <laughs> with it. So listen, he he was he was a gangster himself. <laughs> <laughs> Do you ever feel him when you're doing, I feel like I know the answer to this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Do you feel him, them, it, when you are doing this work? Yes, I know, I know, I know, I know. Because he just helps me. You know, even when things don't go right the way I want that night, it's so funny because I always pray before I go and it happens and I go, all right, God, you know I wasn't supposed to, you know that wasn't supposed to go that way, but I guess you're trying to get me to learn something. Yeah. <laughs> or maybe, you know, maybe, Put me down a little bit, yo. You know, just case if you feel like you, I'm good. It's now time for me to share and help the next female who wants to do it. Can you talk about what that felt like to be the first ref ever to be inducted into the International Women's Boxing Hall of Fame? Well, at first I thought they had made a mistake calling me. Uh, <laughs> Honestly, I was like, what? You know, is this a little joke here? You know, is that April Fool's or whatever? I didn't even believe it. I, I didn't even at that time didn't really felt that I had to deserve it. And then they started talking and talking, but you did this while we I was like, I, oh, I did. Oh, you were like, okay. All right, I'll take it in. I'll take it in. And it was, it was, it was, oh man, that was amazing. That was so amazing. My family and friends came all the way out here to Florida to support me. I was like, oh my God. And then Didi with Leila Ali getting inducted at the same time. Oh, you know, I was like, oh, I done made it now. One thing that you started your speech off with was a reference to God, and you've brought up God uh, during our conversation. Um, what do you think God thinks about boxing? Wow, I think he likes it. <laughs> he believes, yeah, listen, he, he, I think he's proud of me. I, I know he is, because he knows I'm always, listen, I, he know I don't do nothing without him. You know, I'll do nothing. Even if I have a fight, listen, I can have a fight in Atlantic City, come home one or two o'clock in the morning. I'll be half asleep. I go to church. I'm a praise dancer at my church, Memorial Baptist Church in, in Harlem. I will be there. Damn, they like, oh, I just fuck. We didn't think you was going to come. I said, 
if I can be up all night with the fight, the Lord know I can dance for the Lord. I said, I might go sleep after church. I don't know how long I'm going to stay up, but I'm going to do what he told me what I'm supposed to do. I saved my most difficult question for last. You get to ref your dream match between two people, living or dead. Who are those two boxers? Marvin Hagler, and to see him do the rematch with Trigger Ray Lennon. Hagler, Marvin Hagler, you got to see him. And I got to meet him before he passed. Thank you, God. I got a picture with him that I'll just keep for the rest of my life. I told him I love him. They had this fight that was amazing. They were like the best fighters in that time. And then what happened was when he lost the fight, he left and went out the country. He left the United States and he went to Europe, never came back. Marvin Hagler never came back. But that was like one of the greatest fights you could ever saw with Sugar Ray Lennox. I would have loved to see that fight. <laughs> yes. Sparkle Lee. I love you. I still like me. <laughs> I thought I was going to be nervous, but you are so amazing. You got such, it's a spirit that's coming through here that I wish I could like meet you in person. So I just want to say thank you. You are so amazing. I'm serious. Something about you, I know. And I like, so I want to tell you that. Thank you. I feel the same way about you. What a joy. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You too. Love you. Peace. Bye. This episode was Khalil Rahman's knockout of an idea, and we had production help from Jessica Severin Martinez, Meg Fitzgerald, Meg Dalton, and Katie Talarski at Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford. And thank you so much to our interns, Carol Chen and Stacey Addo. I know you loved these women, so subscribe to Audacious and scroll back to find this other episode we did featuring a 105-year-old woman who set a record in her age group running the 100-yard dash. And check out my conversation with a woman who's transgender on what it was like coming out while working in the trucking industry. You can hear them all at ctpublic.org audacious or wherever you get your podcasts. Send me your thoughts on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Wolf. Or you can send an email to audacious at ctpublic.org. Thanks for listening. <laughs>